Welcome to episode 49 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's highest rated open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and tonight we're going to venture into the wonderful world of half-frame 35mm cameras. How many people will join us tonight? Will it be like the Grayflex episode with 19 people, or will it be like the last episode with only three? No one knows. Before we find out, though, how about some introductions? From the lower half of the Earth's hemisphere is our resident Aussie Rules half-frame expert, Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, did Snyder ever make a half-frame camera? No, they did not. But uh, if they did, I'd be looking for that one as well with about the same percentage of success rate as what I am for the actual Snyder itself. Next, from Gainesville, Florida, is a man who can't seem to find an Agate 18, Mr. Anthony Rue. How has the search been for this extremely high-quality, precision, Soviet half-frame camera? You know, they're out there, and they're in the Ukraine, and I want to support Ukrainian sellers, but boy, have the prices doubled in the last four years. And I'm just not sure I want to splash out $100 on that little piece of plastic. So what you're saying is you need the prices to drop in half, right? Yeah, more or less. I remember that I bought my first one in East Germany in 1989 for $20 US. And finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, a man who if you halved the number of cameras he has for sale, he'd still be the show's leading gas dealer, Mr. Paul Reibold. Paul. Do you even have any half-frame cameras in the glass cabinet in your living room? I have, at this point, zero. Well, no, I shouldn't say that, because I do have the Mercury. I have a Mercury. That would count. All right. I was going to say, if you have zero and have it, you still have zero. I, I think I have a Foth Derby, which takes 127, but makes 24 by 36 images. So does that qualify as a half-frame? If we get into half-frame, into anything other than 35mm, boy, will we have a lot of errata for next time. <laughs> All right. What a fun last episode we had. Although not a ton of people joined us to talk about it, we had great feedback from you guys. Uh, lots of people tuned in to download the show, so thank you guys for listening. So much to talk about with Kanaka. We don't have a specific brand in, in, in mind tonight, but uh, we'll just talk about all the different half-frame cameras. We have a few people in the waiting room, so let's let them in. All right. We have some returning listeners. Back from last week is Ray Nason. Hey, Ray, how you doing? Hey, good evening. How are you? All right. Brian Howard's back. Hey, Brian. Hey. Awesome. We have Phil C. Phil, I don't recognize your name. Is this the first time you've been on the show? Uh, no, I was on the digital one a few weeks ago. That's right. Well, introduce yourself. Uh, my name's Phil, uh, avid camera collector, obviously. I'm in the Facebook groups a lot. Excited to talk about some half-frame cameras. Awesome. And I see, I'm really sorry, I'm not going to say this right, Kier Fry. Is that right? Pretty close. Kier Frey. Kier Frey. Kier, where are you from? Uh, Ipswich, Australia. Oh, all right. Oh. Theo is not alone tonight. <laughs> it depends what football team he follows, whether we kick him out or not, though. Oh, we, we had a chat about this. I've been under a pseudonym on Facebook, so we were talking about lions versus demons. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, he's a northerner. All right, so we're going to start with half-frame discussions. You know, it wouldn't be a Camerosity podcast if I didn't uh, drone on a little with a little bit of history. One thing that I think is, is important to know, we always say half-frame, half-frame, half-frame. But the reality is people didn't actually call what we call now half-frame cameras until about the 60s. It wasn't until 1959 Olympus released the pen and that sort of reignited interest in what you know we call half frame, which is 18 by 24 millimeter, 35 millimeter film. 
Prior to the war, though, you have a lot of cameras, a lot of American cameras, some some made in Germany that shot the exact same size, like the Mercury 1, the Mercury 2. Ansco had the memo. There was actually an Agfa memo that shot the same size. And while the, the size is approximately the same, back then they would have called that single frame. So the origins of 35 millimeter film in, in still cameras goes back to old cinema film, which originally goes back to Thomas Edison with the kinetoscope who started off with that double perforated 35 millimeter wide film. Edison's projectors were so popular that in the early part of the 20th century, people attempted to standardize the not only the projectors, but the cameras that actually recorded them. Because what good is making a motion picture film if no one can display on the type of film that you'd be sending out? So 35 millimeter film quickly became known as cinema film. In Germany, it was cine or kine, kine film. And people would record on cinema cameras and typically like they still do today, when you're recording motion picture, you need large reels, 100 foot, 400 feet. I think some even come a thousand feet. And if you think about what it's like to record a motion picture, you got the camera rolling. You don't want to be in the middle of a scene when you run out of film. So the camera operator would use a foot meter that would measure how many feet of film was left. When they got close to the end of the roll, they would stop. And rather than risk running out of film in the middle of a scene, they would usually swap out what was left, you know, maybe 50 or so feet of, of the film, put it in a new roll. And that they would take out the unused portion and sometimes they'd throw it away. Sometimes they'd find other uses for it. But eventually those, we call them short ends, people started picking them up and saying, well, what can we do with this film? And some hobbyists started figuring out, well, hey, let's take single pictures films with them. Let's make cameras, still cameras that could use this film. Oscar Barnack did that in 1913 with the original Leica prototype. He wanted to create a camera that could actually test, you know, shutters, exposures. People call it the exposure tester camera. That's debated. But um, essentially, some of the original cameras, like the QRS DeVry, the Tourist Multiple, there are a bunch of other ones. There was a French camera. So anyway, so the earliest cinema cameras used 35 millimeter film. And because they shot 18 by 24, that's how the still cameras did it too. It was actually Barnack was one of the people who really pushed for what they called double frame. So double frame is what we consider normal. They doubled the width of 18 millimeters and made it 36 millimeters. So you had 24 by 36. So you had double frame cameras and you had single frame cameras. If, if I can interrupt you for just a second to be, I mean, I, I've got to put my, my film studies PhD to some good use. Go ahead. Even before Edison, you know, the first motion picture device was from the Lumiere brothers. Uh, it's called the cinematograph. And the thing that was cool about the cinematograph is that the camera was also the projector. Right. So that you would take the device out during the day and shoot your film with it. And then at night, you would bring it back, develop your film, put a light source in it and project it onto the screen through the camera. Yeah. Which was just like the coolest thing, I thought. That's really how film you know, spread around the world was through the cinematograph. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a huge hobbyist market. If the Internet existed back then, I imagine there would have been uh, Facebook groups of people figuring out ways to cobble together cameras using short ends of film. Eventually, 35 millimeter caught on. It ended up becoming the dominant style of film shortly after World War II. The need for these smaller single frame cameras started to disappear. The Mercury was made after World War II, but it died off about 1950. A lot of those early pre-war cameras all got discontinued. And basically by the 50s, if you shot 35 millimeter, it was just double frame. And since there was no reason to call it double frame anymore, that just became normal. And then when uh, Maitani created the Olympus Pen, which was originally called the Olympus 18, but uh, when he released that in 59, it started to catch on in Japan. Film was still super expensive then. 
and uh, a huge number of Japanese companies started making these half frame cameras. So even though the film size is pretty close to the same, and I say pretty close because like the Mercury's film gate's actually 17 millimeters wide. It's not 18. Some of those cameras are off by a millimeter or two, but you know, we'll just say close enough. If there's any takeaway from my long diatribe there is when you're referring to a camera like the Mercury or any of the pre-war cameras that we call half frame now, the, the proper term for the analytical experts would be single frame cameras, but doesn't matter. We still call them all together. You know, you get extra exposures. We've talked before how the photo finishers hated them, but that's enough for me. It's that, that concludes the historical segment of, of the show. Well, let me ask you another hist- historical question just to get it out of the way, because it'll probably come up in the group at some point. Uh, you know, I've got a number of, of Voigtlander buses, but I still have the original masking frame so that the camera is a six by nine, uh, but then it has, you know, like multiple windows and it has these frames, these masks that drop in so that I get uh, 16, six, four, five images out of a roll of 120 as opposed to eight, six by nines. Would you consider that to be a half frame or is half frame only uh, when you're talking about 35 millimeter film? For the purposes of this show, we could talk about whatever we want, but if we're, to answer the actual question and the way you probably are meaning it, I, I would say not. And the reason being is that roll film cameras were never designed with a specific aspect ratio in mind. So a, a six by four and a half, a six by six, a six by seven, a six by nine, six by 17, regardless of the aspect ratio, if you're sh- referring to 120, to me, those are all correct. You know, half frames suggest that it's half of something else. And yeah, six by four and a half is technically half of six by nine. We mentioned in the previous show when you're talking about the early japanese six by four and a half folders those usually had names like semi semi pearl semi there was a petri semi i think they just meant semi was their way of saying it's half of six by nine kodak anytime you see the word duo the duo 620 that means it shoots six by four and a half so certainly those companies acknowledge that six by four and a half is half of six by nine. But I don't know if I, if I think that actually qualifies as half frame because to, again, that film doesn't have a dedicated, you know, intended uh, exposure size, like 35 millimeter kind of does, but they're great cameras. So, I mean, we've talked about the Mercury. I've mentioned a couple of times. Is anybody on the show? We have a new person who joined Maxwell Whitaker. Welcome to the show, Maxwell. A lot of people have Mercury's, but has anybody here actually shot one? I've shot one. You've shot one? Mercury too. The Mercury is is has that hump on the top for anybody who's not familiar. It looks like it's one of the more iconic looking cameras. Collectors love them simply because they just look so different. What I really love about the camera is the rotary shutter just spins like a huge Pac-Man. If you actually open them up, the shutter kind of looks like Pac-Man with the mouth. And as you change the shutter speed, you're actually not changing the speed that it rotates. You're changing the angle of his mouth. So... At the highest speed, the mouth is like a slit. It's almost completely closed. And then at the slower speed, picture Pac-Man's mouth gets really wide and his mouth is wide open. So as the shutter is spinning around, the wider Pac-Man's mouth is, the longer light can pass through the shutter. So hence the slower shutter speed. But you can really feel that the torsion of the shutter spinning and it has a a really distinct like sound as it kind of goes. So from a tactile uh, an, an audible experience. They're fun to shoot, but they have great lenses. The Wallensack lenses, most of them said universal, but there were some that were Wallensack made that are, are incredibly sharp. So the, the Mercury 2 is actually designed for normal 35 millimeter 
You can actually still shoot the original Mercury, which used a proprietary type of film, but it was still double perforated 35 millimeter. It just had different cassettes that can't be rewound. So if you're clever and you have two empty cassettes from original Mercury, you can still shoot those with just bulk 35 millimeter, but it's just easier to shoot the Mercury too. But um, if you want to go back to the 30s, it's a great camera. Two questions, Mike. One, didn't they do like a special World's Fair version of the camera that had like an, an insanely high shutter speed? Yeah, in 39, the original Mercury had, so the top speed of the Mercury was one 1,000th of a second. And Universal, the company that made that camera, wanted to, kind of show, you know, beat their chest and say, hey, look at us. We have an American-made focal plane shutter with a top speed faster than anybody else had. Well, when they were designing it, it was right before contacts, or Zeiss, I should say, Zeiss had the contacts two and three with the one 1,250th shutter speed. So the original version of the Mercury only went to one 1,000. But in order to top them, they made a version of that camera called the CC1500. And they changed the uh, the shutter slightly so that the top speed is one 1,500th of a second. They're very rare. They're worth quite a bit of money. And uh, that version with the 1,500 top speed is only on the original Mercury. They never made the Mercury 2 at that higher speed. It, it wasn't very reliable. Do you have one there, Paul? Like, what was the hot top shutter speed of the one you were just talking about? 1500 would be the, the, the really desirable one, and that's only the original model that had that. And the two goes to a thousand, but two then also has a red scale, a red scale. You can't, I don't think you can see it here. On the shutter speed, there's a... So the numbers are all in red, or is there just a red little triangle? No, it's a, it's a red area between one and 1000. That's normal. They all have that. Okay. That's to probably warn you which direction you're going in. So all the Mercury 2s only go up to 1, 1,000. Some of the original Mercuries were 1,000 and some of them were 1,500. And if you have one with the 1,500 top shutter speed, it's worth quite a bit more. From a glance, a lot of, if, if you don't look at the Mercury 1 and Mercury 2 side by side, you'd think they look exactly the same. But once you have two of them side by side, there's, they're actually quite a bit different. The Mercury 2 is a lot wider. The Mercury 2 also has a separate rewind knob on the front. So like from a glance, like let's say you're browsing a, a eBay lot of cameras and you see kind of a blurry Mercury in the background, you can easily differentiate the Mercury 1 versus, it wasn't actually called Mercury 1, it was called the Mercury uh, Candid Camera, but just call it Mercury 1. But you can easily identify that versus the 2 by whether it has the extra wine knob in the front or not. And the, they were all called, they were all CXs, weren't they? The two was the CX. CX, was the, that was the model number of CX. The original one was called the CCC. The one thing I've noticed about the Mercury's is they all seem to have a really bad finish to them, the ones that are being sold online. The metal seems to have a bit of a problem in terms of aging well. Is that because they half-arsed? The, the work they did into the metal? Well, they, they had a half their supply of the alloy that they were using for the pre-war models. So the post, so all CCs were pre-war, all CXs were post-war. They had to redo after the war because the CC used a type of film that Mercury sourced from a company in Belgium. And after the war, getting anything out of Europe was impossible. So Universal knew that if we're going to continue to sell this camera, we need to adapt it to use regular Kodak 135 cassettes. So that's why they redesigned it as the CX Mercury 2. But another change, Theo, is that they had to change the alloy because the whole body is made out of a solid alloy. 
And I have the original Mercury CC here, and usually they're pretty shiny. They can still oxidize, so it is possible to see the original Mercury CC with a little bit of oxidation, but it's usually nowhere near as bad as the Mercury 2s. If you can find a Mercury 2 that's not completely corroded, that's pretty rare. Like mine, like Paul's. Paul's is pretty good. My, mine, is, mine is excellent. Yeah. Another flaw of both of these is the body covering. On this one, on mine, it's in great shape. It's not peeling at all. But if they peel off, if you've ever seen a Mercury with the body covering removed, you can usually go on eBay and there'll be one or two of them there like that. But there's this weird texture to the metal under it. It's not smooth. It looks like, it almost looks like they wanted it to not have a body covering. And then at the last minute they added it. But whatever the metal is made out of, it's so bumpy that getting any of the skins that you can buy online to stick to it is incredibly difficult. So mercuries can be very tricky to reskin if you get them where the original body covering is missing. But if you can find one in nice shape, uh, they're very sexy. Hey, Ray, did you, have you shot film through yours? Have you processed anything? It's, it's been 10, 12 years, yes. It was great. Uh, I just picked up a CC, and I didn't realize it was a CC until I'm analyzing, looking at it. It was boxed as well. And uh, I think Mike's the one that identified saying, yeah, that's a, that's a pre-war. It looks pretty pretty clean. I was, I was really disappointed because I don't have the cassettes for it. You know, what's interesting, Mike, is, uh, guys, uh, the uh, the Olympus Pen F series also uses a rotary style shutter, but doesn't have this, you know, it's a very, very small camera. Right. It's rotary in the sense that something spins around an axis, but the, the actual design is very, very different. I agree. I agree. Well, th doesn't the Mercury derive from a motion picture projector, sort of like the cinematograph did? Yes, because Universal primarily was a cinema motion picture camera company. They did make still cameras before the Mercury, the Model A, but they were very, very basic, basic cameras. And when they wanted to make something that was a little bit high end, they, they went all out and designed. There's a, there's an expert on Mercury cameras. She wrote a book, um, Cynthia Rapinski. Cynthia Rapinski wrote a book. It's called The Universal Story. I actually tried to get her on the show when we did the Argus episode because she's friends with Mike Reitzma and Phil Sterrett, who is on that episode. Uh, unfortunately, she has some health issues and one is unable to participate. But if anybody is interested in Universal, the book doesn't have a ton about the Mercuries. It's more about the company just in general and everything they did. Really, really fascinating. She sells the books on eBay. You're buying straight from her and she'll autograph it for you. Usually the books are like 25, 30 bucks. So it's, it's not a, a huge investment, but if you're interested in Universal Camera Corp, they had a pretty cool story. Were there any other half-frame American-made cameras? Would the ansco memo count as an american camera yep yes absolutely so this this is one i bought off paul who claims not to have half frame cameras but has actually sold me one but this is um again a cartridge works off cartridges it's actually a very simple cartridge where if you can't find them you can actually make one yourself uh they're pretty straightforward and basically just stick film in it and it's basically a box camera it has a top speed of a hundredth of a second and uh, aperture that goes from 6.3 to f16. I think they're wonderful looking little cameras actually because they've got the really beautiful uh, viewfinder at the top. I mean, what other camera comes with a little handle as well? So you can actually <laughs> carry it around with you. Have you shot it yet, Theo? No, I have not. I have not. I have played with it, but I haven't shot with it. Yeah, very fun camera. So that camera, that camera came out in 27 and it uses, they call it memo film, 
which is very, very similar to Agfa's Carat film, where it's cassette to cassette, but it uses just regular 35 millimeter bulk film. If you have two cassettes, or like what, what Theo said, you can make your own cassette. I think you can actually even fit the Carat cassettes in there. They'll, they'll wobble around a little, but they should stay in there. Yeah, you could probably 3D print them because there, there's no spool. It's just an, an hollow cassette that film just transports from one to another. And the film advance, it has a very distinct like ratcheting, almost like a shotgun cocking sound. You, you basically stick your finger in this little like loop and you push down on it and it like ratchets like and it moves the film from, from one exposure to another. But since it's 18 by 24, it doesn't have to go very far. The viewfinder is really big and bright on there for a 1920s camera. It's, it's a joy to use. Does anybody have any other suggestions? Uh, something that's a little bit interesting to note about the Ansco memo is that from what I recall, they actually made a uh, film strip projector for those, which kind of connects back with the uh, motion picture connection. But it's kind of interesting that uh, maybe prints were not the immediate goal of the memo. I think they called it the memo scope or something like that. If I'm recalling, you could get a, a, a memo projector. So after you had the film developed, you could actually project it back through the camera onto a, a small screen or something like that. I'd imagine. I've never seen one, but uh, if, if you read my review on my site, I have a picture of the ad that Ansco advertised the camera and it mentions the uh, projector optional that you could have bought at the same time, too. Since, since you've actually jumped in here, Maxwell, do you want to introduce yourself because you joined us quite late? Yeah, I was a little bit late. I was at the uh, Kroger, but uh, I'm Maxwell. I uh, let me think. I live in uh, central Kentucky. I uh, tend to shoot mostly half frame, actually. I uh, use my Agate 18K, and uh, it's one preferred formats, actually, to enlarge. I don't see a lot of people making enlargements from half frame, but it's very doable. I use a Durst M301 if anybody else has uh, used one of those enlargers. Maxwell, one of, one of my first gallery shows was work that I shot entirely on the agate. I'm very partial to that little camera. I heard that in a previous episode. Those are just phenomenal cameras. I bought mine maybe three years ago and I have kind of a hard time sticking with one camera, but I mean, that is one camera that I can just, anytime I want to put a roll of film through, I, you know, I keep it with me at all times. I've got a Raleigh 35, which is a great camera, but I mean, I just can't keep it with me as much as I can that agate. It's fantastic. I'm I'm equally passionate about it. I got mine about two or three years ago as well. And it's it's the perfect portable camera as far as I'm concerned. It's like you can't beat it for size and it's indestructible. And that lens really punches above its weight. And I don't think any other camera really had a similar metering system. I don't think anything else did anything similar to that unless I'm wrong. Uh, there, I think there actually were a few. I, I put together a little bit of a chart uh, for today's talk with some of the uh, smaller cameras. But I believe the Canon, Canon Demi had a ring that controlled, the original Demi had a ring, that, a single ring for both aperture and shutter speed, kind of on a program setting. I've never seen one in person though, so I don't know if anybody else can verify that. You, you're correct, Brian. Everybody's whipping out their uh, their Demis. The Demis. I have the Demi C, so this is the one with the interchangeable lenses, but otherwise I think it's the same. But you are correct. It has a single ring. It says 30 and then a long line all the way to 250. And it's using some kind of like fixed program AE for it. So I've actually never shot this one either. Since we're on the topic of the agate, two things that, that I think are really helpful with that. One, there is actually uh, the program is published in the manual. So you can see what the shutter speeds are. And it's different for the 18 and the 18K. And the other thing I, I only realized after several months of having it is that there is actually a hyperfocal scale on the front of the lens. It is absolutely tiny, but there's a series of notches. Um, like notches, yep. 
yeah, around the front that correspond to the apertures. And uh, one could be forgiven for not noticing that. Yeah, that's fantastic. How many different colors? They mostly came with yellow and black, but the original one was orange and black. I don't know. Do they come in any colors other than that? I think there's a blue. Because I could have sworn I've seen a green. Yeah, I've seen a green. I've seen a green as well. I think generally the 18Ks are yellow and the 18s are orange, but I'm not sure about the other colored ones. Is the Agfa... Is the agate an Agfa product? Sorry, I didn't hear that first bit. No, I believe it's Belomo, isn't it? It's a Belomo. It says on the, the little lens cap. It's a Soviet camera. Got it. Okay. No, I have, it's new to me. Thanks. It's a, a camera that if you first see it, it's entirely plastic. So here's the yellow. It's very, very primitive feeling. It was uh, or Anil was uh, commenting on how difficult they are to load. They are kind of a pain in the ass to load. The camera literally splits in half like it splits right down the middle when you open it up to load film in it but if you could manage to get it loaded and you, you can get through a whole roll through it for as cheap feeling of this camera i mean it's all plastic it's very very lightweight but it does have a glass four element lens that takes really good pictures so it, it's so unsuspecting it looks like a children's toy but uh it produces way way better images than you'd expect so if you have a chance to get one of these and it use you know it's regular half frame you know 35 millimeter film so it doesn't need anything special but if you could find one anthony's you're gonna have to find two because anthony wants the first one <laughs> oh they're remarkably uh cheap and typically sold out of ukraine well and that's what I told him. But he said, like, everything he's finding is like $70 and up. So there must be a run on them or something. No, I, I bought my second one like three months ago, and it's, it, it cost me 50 from Ukraine. Oh, send, send me a link. Unless, <laughs> unless the run started recently. Maybe I started that run. But <laughs> I just want to end the discussion on the memo. Um, the ANSCO memo that we were talking about, the one that Theo had, was made in the 20s. Well, in the late 30s, Interestingly, Agfa made a camera called the Memo, and Agfa is a German company, but it was made in New York. So it's an American-made Agfa camera called the Memo. It uses the exact same film and the exact same cassettes as the Ansco Memo, but the camera looks completely different. It's a horizontal folding bed, kind of like a retinette. Uh, the film transports sideways. They actually made it in both half frame well, they would have called it single frame and double frame. You cannot switch back and forth. Whichever model you get is just what you're going to shoot. I happen to have the single frame version, and you can easily tell which one you have by looking at the shape of the viewfinder. In the, in the single frame version, it's much narrower. In the double frame version, it's wider like you would expect an image to be. But that's actually a really cool camera too. It's a little bit more ergonomically pleasing. Uh, it's not quite like a wooden box like the Ansco version is. They were made like 12 years apart, same film, same name, same quality images, but that's a fun one to shoot too if you happen to find the Agfa memo. But that's really the last of the major American single frame cameras. To really continue the story, like I alluded to in the intro, you have to jump all the way to when the, the pen first came out because the Olympus really hit the, the, the ground running with those. Before we get to the pen, though, sure. both sort of straddling pre- and post-war, I think there are two cameras that I'd, I'd like to mention. One being the Baroning Robot, which is a square frame camera, not quite half frame. And then a, a camera that I've never shot, which is the 10X, the, the Zeiss. Uh, do you consider square frame to be a half frame camera? I mean, all of these like sort of odd, non-standard formats, because I, I am absolutely a fanatic for the Baroning Robot. If you've never held one, it's actually about the size of a Rolly 35, but it weighs as much 
as like a standard SLR. The thing is a tank. Uh, and of course, coming from, from, from robot, it's a clockwork windup camera so that you, you wind it on the top yep. and get uh, four or five shots off as fast as you can pull the trigger, which is pretty fast. Actually, you can get a, a, a very tight sequence. Uh, if you're shooting anything, that's sort of action. It is just a rangefinder. There's no viewfinder. I mean, it is just a viewfinder. There is no rangefinder to it. Uh, so you have to be able to, to hyper-focus or be good at guessing your, your distances. But again, it's a camera that had an, uh, its own proprietary interchangeable lens format. It used, uh, both, uh, has a Schneider, Kreuznach lenses, there's there's Xenars and Xenons for it, and Tele-Xenars, and it also was available with uh, Zeiss Sonars. You know, there, there was uh, a few people that sort of fetishized about the fact that during the war it was used by the Luftwaffe, because you could wind them up and put them on a plane. Right, that's correct. And, and but then it continued after the war uh, in its original uh, Robot 2 format, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of these cameras that I just feel like I need to be uh, evangelical about it. Because, you know, you look at it and think, oh, that's a cute little camera. It's when you pick it up and you realize these things have so much gravity to them. And they're such a heavy, well-made chunk of metal. And again, they, they work like clockwork. Uh, I've never, I've had three different burning twos, robot twos. Never had a single one that didn't fire accurately as far as shutter speed goes. And, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just a, an interesting um, it's just an interesting line that you can, you can really go down that rabbit hole, uh, because of course the camera, uh, continued, I mean, robots still makes traffic cameras as far as I know, and, uh, surveillance cameras. And, but you know, they're, they're, they're sort of last to raw were the robot Royals that came out in the 1950s, sort of as a, a competitor to the, uh, to the Leica M3. And these were both, both half frame and full frame motor drive, just substantial rangefinder cameras again a full complement of lenses that are as good as anything that you'll find for any other system they tend to be pricey and uh you know i have one that i picked up from paul that is the full frame version and it's uh it's a delight to shoot it's 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 quirky it's weird it's incredibly heavy but it is also manufactured to a uh, a level of precision that you just don't find in other cameras so you got the robot you got the royal 36 Correct. I got the one that's full frame. Okay. I had a Royal 24 also. And I, I got the 36 and it's nice because you can actually use a standard film cassette in the supply, but it uses, because of the way that it pulls through the motor drive, you have to have the proprietary take-up reel because it like opens the gap for the film to be sucked into the uh, supply or into the, the take-up reel. They needed to make sure that there was like as little resistance as right. possible for the motor right. drive to work smoothly. But I was going to point out they were used in uh, traffic cams too for, I think through the 80s. I don't, I, I don't think they did it past that. I think they're still making them. Really? Yeah, I think they, they still are. I mean, they're just like black boxes now. They don't look like cameras. They were they were traffic cameras. They were also post cameras. So they used them for postal uh, postal service uh, for uh, documenting packages and addresses and things like that. With the square format, though, Anthony, you asked the question: Would it be considered half frame? It's half of what? That's probably the question I would ask. Partial frame. Well, it's smaller than thirty five. The only reason I I I group it separately is a lot of half frame cameras are relatively inexpensive but the robots and the 10x's are the complete opposite they're they're pricey but if we take that line of thought and i'm about to throw a cat amongst the pigeons here isn't a full frame 35 millimeter frame 
half a uh, X-pan size panoramic frame. So isn't technically the full frame then the half frame? Hey, oh, go to your room. Yeah, go to your room. <laughs> <laughs> Do we need to watch that YouTube video to figure out Cat Among the Pigeons? <laughs> Theo's had a lot of extra time on his hands lately, so he's had a lot of time to think too much. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's that's why I spent the time earlier to clarify, you know, half frame is a relatively newer term. It wasn't always that way. You know, originally it was single and double frame. So using Theo's logic, X-Pan could be, you know, double frame, single frame, half frame, but no one really uses that term. Uh, you know, I welcome all non-24 by 36 type of cameras. Um, if, if you're going to mention the square frames, though, you have to also mention the photo of it, the bolt of photo of it, which was also a 24 by 24, very, very small camera. It wasn't motor drive. But what's neat about those cameras is that even though they did use regular 35 millimeter film, they used proprietary cassettes that the Japanese went crazy for. And they would take what they called Bolta cassettes, and they made a whole series of cameras called Bolta film cameras. And they would make this 35 millimeter paperback film, which was very, very popular in like the 50s. So if if you if you have a Von Cabbage collection, you probably have a whole bunch of Bolta Japanese cameras that was inspired from the photo of it, which itself was a 24 by 24 square exposure camera. So so the, the 24 by 24 was had its there were many of them being produced in Japan in the 50s. Right. And yeah. 60s. And at that time, the basically film was either 20 or 36 exposures. So if you put a 20 exposure roll of film in it, that gave you 40. And if you put 36 in it, you had 72 exposures. So we we used to, the photo finishers had a, a, a joke about processing it. They had what they call the holiday roll of film, where you get a roll of film and you get it processed and you have New Year's Day, Easter, Fourth of July and Thanksgiving and Christmas, all on the same roll of film. Very true. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, obviously that was something that, that you dealt with a lot in the half frame world. Don't forget the trip to the Grand Canyon, Paul. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, well, the other one was, Ray, do you remember uh, Elford's uh, short-lived 72 exposure roll of film? Yeah, I do. Elford made a, 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 a one emulsion of black and white film that came in 72 exposure rolls, a very thin emulsion. And uh, I know a guy that actually put one of those in a half frame camera. So he had 144 exposure on one roll of film. And actually, the film wasn't bad. The problem was that you couldn't hang it to dry. Because it was 12 feet long. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you develop it? You, you had to cut it in half. And, and You just had to blindly like sacrifice one exposure. Because there's no way you'd know where to cut between frames before you develop it. Plus, you'd have to, you know, your kids would inherit the rest of the roll of film because you'd never get it finished and have to actually process it for you. <laughs> so something I think is, is interesting is, you know, we talk about digital, you know, spray and pray. You know, I have no problem pulling out my Z5. I could shoot 200 pictures like that at a family event. But ask me to finish a, a 72 exposure roll of film in a half frame camera and I can't do it. I don't know, like, what the mental block is, is that I sh I should be able to use that same principle that I, you would with digital when shooting half frame, but I, I don't seem to ever be successful. You know what, what the thing is? It has to be a camera that you really like to shoot, something that's really beautiful. And I, I actually brought one with me today because I, I absolutely love this camera. And uh, it's uh, it's a Agfa Optima Parrot. It's an absolutely gorgeous little camera. It's, it's half frame. And interesting with this one is it's actually, there you go, you got a black one there, 
Mike. It actually has a meter on it, which is selenium, but it's got LEDs in the actual uh, viewfinder. So you can actually, it actually meters for you and based on the, the power it's drawing from the actual uh, selenium cell, it's actually powering the LED inside to actually let you know whether you're going to be underexposed or, oh, wow. or correctly exposed. So that is, and it's just this gorgeous little camera, especially if you get the Chrome one. I, I prefer the Chrome one. Though. I know you have the black one there, Mike. The Optima is Chrome and it has the meter. This is just called the Parrot One. So it, it does not have the meter, but it's the same body. Yes. And uh, it it's manual everything. You have to select shutter speeds and f-stops and everything. So it's completely mechanical. It's about as minimalist on the top as you can get. Yeah. So it, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I love this camera. I agree. It feels wonderful in the hands. It has a hot shoe. I love the ergonomics of it. The images it makes are really nice. And even though I have the black body, the chrome on it is just really, really shiny and just... it. It, it feels substantial. So, Mike, can we talk about the, the elephant in the room? And that is, you know, I'm a half-frame fanatic. I probably have 15, 20 half-frame cameras, never shot an Olympus pin. And I am bewildered by the, uh, the different models over the years. I know that there's an Olympus pin wide that I would love to have. And I see one there with Ray. Yeah, Ray's got one. That is like the camera that I would, you know, maybe when I'm in Japan this year, I'll, I'll, I'll just stumble across one and be able to you know, hold it and make sure that it's working because uh, they are a little bit pricey. But uh, can you or anybody else sort of give an overview as to, to, to what to look for if you're if you're looking to get into the Olympus pen? Because they, they didn't they make them for like 30 years or 25 years they it's extremely long run on that on that product line and there are at least a half dozen if not more iterations two types of pens you could talk about though i mean let's let's sort of break it up for everybody here too it's the the actual slrs so there's the the pen f's and uh, the various models including that wide one which is the, the slrs you can get the ones with the standard script at the top but there's also the ones with that really fancy script like on what's uh what ray has also got on the on the actual lens cap yeah this, this is so there there's an f and there's an ft so the ft is not doesn't have the script the F does have it. The FT has a meter. The the F does not have a meter. So, and right now, to be honest with you, I was on a buying kick the past probably year and a half on buying as many broken Fs as I possibly could find. It just seems everyone I picked up is working and I get it home and they stop working. So I, I probably have 30 of them ready for service right now. Now, I've never actually handled an FT. I've, I've had a couple Fs, but what I've heard is because the FT has the meter, it makes the viewfinder darker. Is that true? A little bit. Actually, I'm, well, I've never shot the original pen. I, I have both an F and an FT, and uh, it is just slightly darker. It is. Okay, so it's not a huge difference then. No, it's not. Okay. Do you want me to send you an FT? Sure. Okay. There's also the FV, isn't there? That was like, isn't it similar? It took away from your back out. Yeah. What is the difference other than that between the FT, FV and the F? I think the F... V is basically the FT, but without the light meter. So they keep the self-timer. It visually, it looks a lot like the FT, but it doesn't suffer from the view. It has the same brightness in the viewfinder as the original F. I think that was the idea. Is it a single stroke? or? Uh, I believe everything after the original is single stroke. There's also a bunch I've noticed that I purchased a bunch of FTs that were made for industry or medical that do not have the self-timer, which is, which is interesting. And 
even though the shutter gate, the film gate is completely full, they change the focusing screen and they mask the focusing screen as a circle. So uh, it's recording a full frame of film, but as you look through the, you know, the uh, mirror box, if you would, it's a circle. I, I have two of them. I have a chrome and a black. And I'm, I was really considering replacing and having it, you know, service. So it's a conventional, but the more I think about it, I don't think I want to do that. I want to keep it as original as an industrial camera, you know, kind of a neat thing. You know, I don't think I realized, or maybe I didn't just forgot that the later ones were single stroke. Cause again, I only have the F and they're all double strokes. And normally I don't care. I don't have a strong opinion on a single versus double strokes, but something in my mind about a half frame camera also being double stroke just seems ridiculous. Like to me, you know, the, the reason they went on like the Leica M3 with the double strokes is to put less tension on the film, you know, less torque. But I mean, you're only moving the film 18 millimeters. Like, why do they need to do two strokes on that? But because uh, it's smaller, I guess. Yeah. But uh, it just feels weird, like having a double wind to half frame camera. It's ridiculous, but it feels nice. It is nice. Yeah, it does. I'm on the side. I'm a fan. It's the first double stroke I've ever used. And it's it just it's so nice. You get to do it twice. It's it's not a half frame camera, Brian. But if you really like double strokes, then you'll really love the Kodak Signet 40. It's a triple stroke. <laughs> Oh, the, the, the Chevron, it's like five pumps. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm with Brian on that one. I've got the, the M2 double stroke M3, and I, I just love doing that twice. But on the Pen FT, now, can someone actually answer this question? And I sort of know the answer. The lens has the usual aperture, and you know, you've got your film speeds and all that sort of stuff stuff that you said. But when you look through the meter on the FT, you look through the viewfinder on the FT, it has a meter panel on the left hand side which goes one through to seven correct how does that relate back uh or have i arbitrary scale if you look on the bottom of the lens it has the actual f-stops on the bottom of the lens but the one through seven is just an arbitrary uh olympus you've mentioned that to me before but this does not well you've just got like an australian lens that's just lens made by fosters right <laughs> Uh, we export the Fosters, so it wouldn't be Fosters. But anyway. <laughs> the early lenses didn't have the numbering. So lenses made for the original Pen F didn't come with that special numbering system. It was only introduced with the FT. So if you have an original F lens on an FT, you won't have the numbers and you have to kind of figure out how to do it. Or conversely, if you have an FT lens on an F, you'll have the numbers, but nothing to use them, no meter. So. You can just look on the phone. Of course, I had to go look. And yeah, my F camera lens has the numbers one through six on the bottom. So so, so Theo's got a mutt. He's got he's got the wrong. Well, I do too. But yours is an F. I should swap with Theo. Mine's an F, but I have the numbers. Mine does not. Okay, so they have the one through six, but on the underside, doesn't it have F-stops? Yeah, that's what we're saying. On the, on the FT lenses, yes. Yeah, on the, on, on, on the top of the lens, there is an aperture, but on the bottom... Yeah. Yeah, but it's not like the Minolta auto cord where they would have one number on the shutter speed, one number on the aperture, and you had to add them together. It, there's no adding, right? No, there's no adding. Okay. I mean, I feel like you could do a whole episode about the different ways that the EV system has gone off the rails and ruined the lives of photographers throughout the ages. I often wonder how many people read every review I've written. I, I'm sorry for anybody who's done that, but I feel like I've said it probably 40 times how much I hate the EV couplings on practically every camera. 
Like, He's ruined so many good ones. Yeah, and one of them that I think is one of the worst is the Kodak Retinas. I just hate it. You have to like use your fingernail to like pry it back and move it just to change an f-stop. It's it's ridiculous. Whereas oh, and if you use the auxiliary lenses with it, it's even worse. There, some companies were less annoying than like none of them are good. They they go on the scale of mildly annoying to horrible. But for for worst, I would nominate the uh, the Wera or Vera three and four, uh, which have interchangeable lenses. And the release for the lens is right next to the unlock for the rings. Yes. And you push the wrong button, your lens just falls off. You know, Brian, it is hilarious you say that because I am shooting a Vera 4 right now. And I, I did not lose the lens, but I have experienced what you're describing. It takes what otherwise would be a fantastic camera yeah. and just makes it unusable. Well, if we can get back to the original non-SLR pin. Can we give just like a quick commentary, like a buyer's guide on what to look for? Which is the one, what's the sweet spot if you're looking to get into half frame and you want to get an Olympus pin, not splash out on the uh, the SLR, but to get like the, the, the point and shoot version, where does one start? The cheapest point and shoot is basically an automatic camera with a big selenium cell in the front of it. Those are always the cheapest. Those are the, always the ones that are broken or claim they're broken. Besides things like the, then they went to the S series, which has aperture and shutter speed, no problem. One thing that I'm starting to realize is there was a whole bunch of cameras that were not made for the US market, like the D2, D3 series, which also offer faster lenses. So they're 1.7 lenses. This is about the size of a Rely 35, but with a stop faster lens. So even looking, so the W has a 2.8 lens and some of them have a 3.5 and they are, you know, relatively the same size, but the D, D2 and D3 series, which again, if, if it's to my understanding, never made it into Olympus USA for distribution, remarkable lenses, you know, picking up a faster lens, cosmetically coming out of Japan, their mint condition cameras are poor in the US, but for under hundred bucks, you can, you can find yourself a, a very good deal. No problem. I'm looking at a D3 right now, and and boy, what an attractive camera! It's got like a two tone body. Yes. the The viewfinder and where the cell is is black. The rest of the body is chrome, and then you see the larger f17 lens. Yep. Um, that's that's pretty. It, it also has a uh, it also has a built in uh, exposure meter, which similar to the Rely 35, you have to remove the back camera, the the film plate. To change the battery but it's only ex the exposure meter has anyone shot the ken eed which is like the it's got the d2 d3 lens but with the automatic exposure like the ee series i i think that's the best looking of all the pen cameras and i would have got it but i think it it's um, automatic only it doesn't do yeah it is automatic only you know one that's not automatic and it's probably undervalued to some extent uh is the the pen s yeah, the S is a nice camera. It's a, it's a beautiful little camera. And I got really lucky with this one because I, I saw it on eBay once and it was going for $7. Wow. This was a few years ago. And uh, it was from a seller from Pakistan, which was why I think they were reducing it because was people were going, oh, okay. I thought seven bucks protections on, so I'll order it. This thing arrived about two weeks later, seven bucks, free delivery. I have no idea how they got this thing even to Australia from Pakistan for that price. I it must be if someone was traveling with it because and for seven dollars i've had this thing and it's been faultless it is a beautiful little camera it's been serviced and it's a great camera because it gives you full manual control it's got a three centimeter 2.8 uh, zuko lens it's uh it's yeah you've got the aperture and you've got your speeds uh there is no light meter so it just 
puts the control back in your hands for half frame. And it is really, really nice. So I would say, Anthony, the original pen or the S are nice because they're mechanical. You don't have to worry about auto only. The EEs, I think all are auto only because I have an EES and I'm lucky mine still works. I don't know, Ray, do the Ds, do those support manual exposure? Uh, the, the Ds are all basically mechanical. They do have a built-in exposure meter. So life is good, yes. Right. So, I mean, I, honestly, I... I kind of want a D3. So Paul, see if you find you can find one in your basement. So uh, on the topic of the Pen W, uh, I, I think there's an interesting segue from that. That's famous for the 25 mil wide lens. Uh, there's another maker who made two different 25 mil lens half frames. Rico? Yes, the Caddy and the Auto Half. And I think the Caddy is kind of an interesting overlooked uh, camera in many, many places uh, for, you know, pretty good specs coming out of a half frame. Although I will say it's bigger. I, I've only physically held one once. Uh, it's bigger than I thought it would be. I had the Ricoh Drive, and yeah, that was a it was a much larger half-frame camera than I was expecting. Kind of an interesting one where it has the, the auto drive mechanism on it, clockwork drive. Sorry, I have the Ansco version, and it's about the size of a pack of cigarettes. I think it's the same version that Theo has, but with a less psychedelic covering. They made like six different versions of the auto half with different uh, features. It's all fixed focus. I have one, but it, it doesn't work. It's kind of broken. There's a version of the auto half that has a 1.7 lens also. It's really weird looking because it still has that tiny body with a large lens on it. It's very... Uh... Ray, I don't know whether I should thank you or curse you, but I'm sitting here on eBay looking at D2s and D3s and thinking, I can afford that. That's not bad at all. That is a cool little camera. Cool little camera. Changing brands. Now, this is unobtainium for me, but has anybody ever even held a Ducati? Yes, I have. An Italian half-frame camera? Do you have one, Ray? I don't, I don't, I, I had one for like an hour and a half. Is that the same Ducati that makes the motorcycles? Yes. It is? Okay. Yeah, I, I was offered a lot of money for it, so... Everything has a price point. Everything's for sale. So what's what's interesting about the Ducatis, because I did hold one too for a moment at Fond Cabbages, is it is tiny. I mean, it's half frame, but it's, I think, smaller than a pen. I mean, they shrunk that camera down. If you consider what Raleigh, what actually it was Virgen created the Raleigh 35, what he was able to do with a full frame camera, but in a small body, imagine what he could have done if he actually tried to design a half frame camera as small as he could. And that's kind of what the Ducatis look like. But uh, Anthony, do not go on eBay and look for the prices for those. I, I think it's interesting because it's the only, if I'm not mistaken, the only rangefinder interchangeable lens half frame. It might be. Uh, that is not based on an existing full frame design because I got to get the Konica auto dash reflex out of that pool that's an slr too it's not a rangefinder. oh good yeah so I, all right so it is the only interchangeable lens rangefinder half frame you're probably right yeah uh didn't someone tell me during the week that the konica 3 rangefinder also has a mask to shoot half frame the 3m does 3M. that 3m okay the one the one that has the flip up meter had a you could buy a half or um, i think when it was new it came with a mask i don't think you had to pay extra for it but you had to put it in before like so you could not swap it mid-roll you had to put the mask in before loading in the film and it would shoot half frame and, and that's a double stroke too so with the mask in, you only had to stroke once for each half frame we interrupt this episode for the halftime entertainment and a message from our sponsors for the halftime entertainment, we have Rihanna. So, so what's that? What Rihanna's not going to sing because we're only paying half 
the normal right. Oh, don't think. Oh, jeez. The should we talked about earlier. Okay, talk about half-assed. All right. The halftime entertainment, obviously, will not be going ahead, but instead, a message from our sponsors. If you're after bits, bobs, lotions or potions, head over to Paul Reibold's eBay store. Now we will turn you back to your regular programming. I remember why I put, uh, not based on a full frame camera, the Nikon S3M, uh, range finder half frame, but based on full frame. Correct. Oh, and the Leica 72. Leica 72. Or the Leica that I bought from Igor last month that is, is marked 18 by 24, but only counts the 36 on the counter. Really? I, I should have brought it. it it's, 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 uh, it's a... It's a Zorky, you know, uh, Leica uh, with all this, you know, Nazi engraving on it and skulls. And on the top plate of the camera, it's engraved 18 by 24. It's pretty, it's pretty comical. I didn't bring it. I didn't, I'm on the road right now. So I only grabbed a few cameras. Seeing how it wasn't truly a half frame camera, just marked as marker sets, you know. Uh, VEB Pentacon did that to a couple practicas. You can actually find a couple very rare half frame practicas. You know, a lot of times I think that that was done for like medical purposes where they really only only needed a single image and they just wanted to maximize how much film you could get on there wasn't necessarily for the same reason the Japanese liked half frame but uh it seemed to be kind of a popular mod that was available on some SLRs Nikon made an FM half frame interestingly so did Pentax I was trying to research if anybody didn't make a half frame but the Nikon S3M and Pentax had a Pentax MF that was a half frame version of the ME I believe that uh was for medical scientific use only Paul you were referring to the Nikon F half frame yeah, FM FM yeah okay yeah it was actually they were made for the Norwegian police department I think I saw one uh in uh in in Yorkshire back in the late 80s, a, a, a wonderful camera store in Harrogate. That, uh, and, and I was amazed. I, I couldn't figure out what it was. I mean, it was still like, like an FM, but he had a really high price on it. And I, and I opened the back and it was it was made at the factory for half frame. Okay, so if we're talking about cameras that use smaller than normal images for police or medical purposes didn't polaroid didn't polaroid make some film pack cameras that would shoot like four exposures in like a grid wasn't that something for like driver's license photos or something yeah passport the, the passport photo ones there you go i i thought you were going for the mamiya half frame pistol camera the pistol camera yeah that iris showed that was neat mikey you opened the door for me to talk about the uh the agates sexy East German spy counterpart, and that's the Pinty. And you know, this isn't this this crazy East German fashion accessory camera that was this this like textured gold front that kind of looks like a like a compact or like a like a like a jewelry bag. And it the uh, the plastic around the edges came in like five different colors. I've had like a a blood red, like a you know the 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 blood of the proletariat red. And there's a, a turquoise and a yellow, I think, and a, and a black as Theo has. There's a white version. And, and what I like about it is, as you know, Theo's holding is up, it is not only is it stylish, but it has that quasi Vitessa combi the plunger. plunger. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, for the advanced, you just have the little stick that sticks out the side and you press it in. And these, mine is, uh, are those carrot cassettes that, that you just sort of push? the Yes. Well, they call them rap. They call them rapid at that time. And you, you just push the film in. There's no spindle in it, and and 
and it's really designed only to do like 18 35 millimeter exposures so like 36. how big of a pain in the ass is it to load those canisters oh you just push it you just shove it in like literally i, I like I, I bulk load onto one roll and then you put it in a changing bag and just shove it into the other cassette when you get to the end you snip it off and you're ready to go the only catch is don't put too much in like you want Mentally, it's got to be about equal to a normal 12 exposure, 35 millimeters. So whatever. Yeah, you want to do about a two, about a two foot strip. The counter goes to 20. So and you need, you need two cassettes uh, or you can use one and a regular. No, you, you cannot fit a regular cassette in there. You need, you need both special. Okay. But it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun to shoot. And it's uh, again, sort of like the agate, it punches above its weight. And that, that I always am surprised at how, nice the images look that come off of that camera um they are a little bit fussier i've had a couple that broke uh but i but i've got one that, again i got from paul that works perfectly fine and has been reliable and uh boy it gets looks when you pull that thing out because it does not it, it looks like a, something out of barbie's playhouse i mean it does not look like a camera that you know anybody expects so don't hold me to this but i think adam paul told me that in us as a substitute for a rapid or a carrot cassette if you can find a generic kodak disposable single-use camera and break it open the cassettes that those came in were smaller than normal 35 millimeter cassettes so if you've ever opened up like a fun saver there actually is a cassette in there and there's they're plastic but they're smaller than a normal cassette. And I think he told me once that you can just stick that in a, a, a rapid camera and it'll work too. Just be careful you don't electrocute yourself while you're opening these things. Don't electric, right. Another tip, if you're looking for rapid cassettes, a camera that's really, really cheap on eBay that usually has one in it is called the IsoFlash, the Agfa IsoFlash. I mean, it might as well be a disposable camera. It's a really, really cheap, basic all plastic single shutter speed fixed focus camera ironically it's it's 24 by 24 so if you're if you're on a budget and want to try square format 35 millimeter um that's a fun camera to play with but they they use the rapid cassettes too and if, if you're just trying to build up a supply of them you can usually find those for pretty cheap online the popularity we were dancing around the popularity of half frame particularly in japan was it strictly economics was film so much more expensive or so expensive that half frame became popular? Or was it a an easy way to, from a manufacturer, here's an instant, another instant um, um, format. We can just cut 35 and a half and we got a whole new, whole new world. It really was expensive. I actually attempted to figure this out once before. I found a Japanese ad from the late 40s for Kanaka, which you know back then was Kanishi Roku. They made Sakura film. And I found a roll of Sakura film. It was 12 exposures. And I was able to figure out what the conversion ratio was from Japanese yen to US dollars then. And then I use an inflation calculator to calculate what that compares to today. And for a single 12 exposure roll in Japan using modern day US dollars, it was close to 60 bucks. So it was, it, I'm sure I'm making some liberties, but let's say I'm off by half because this is the half frame episode, even at $30 a roll, you could imagine people wanted to be economical. So that's that's also the reason why the little hit cameras, the Toco Tones, the Micros, the, you know, there were so many sub mini cameras that were popular in Japan. 
is they they were just desperate for anything they could do to maximize their photo shooting dollar. That's why all those cameras were so popular, including half frame. Was it? It really was expensive. Uh, that reminds me of a, a a book I think of when I listened to the, the podcast. It's a book called Photography for Everyone. It's a study of the, the rise of popularity of photography in general in Japan from like the turn of the night, turn of the night, turn of the 20th century and how just how it kind of grew and how like many things in Japan, it's a very uh, social and it's all about clubs and about doing things together and uh, kind of a very different, well, obviously a very different way of growing photography compared to, you know, here in Canada or in the US where it's all about, well, I mean, it's just, uh, it's a business. But there was more of a social, a social and um, community aspect of photography. You're you're actually 100 right. I mean, I'm I'm far from an expert. Robert would know more about this. Anybody who knows Japanese culture would know better. But uh, photography was like a cultural phenomenon for the Japanese back then. I mean, not only were they good at making it, like if you think back to post World War II, a lot of you know, I grew up in the 80s during the Cold War, so like everything, my education was always about the Nazis and the Soviets. You know, they didn't teach us a lot about why Japan actually attacked Pearl Harbor and all all the reasons for Japan, which is beyond the scope of this. But when when Japan surrendered. It wasn't just because we dropped the two bombs on them. It was Russia, the Soviet Union declared war on them at that same time. And I think the Japanese realized that if they were going to lose the war, they'd rather lose it to the Americans than have the Soviets come in and end up there being North Japan and South Japan. So they surrendered to us. General MacArthur was put in charge of SCAP, which was basically in charge of rebuilding their infrastructure, getting electricity, water flowing, hospitals. I mean, they had nothing. We decimated them. Right. So we needed to get Japan back up as quickly as possible. And in order to do that, we had to bring in money really, really quickly, as fast as possible. That's where the the exchange posts, the EP cameras were really popular. So what they did was they looked at Japan and said, what are you guys good at? And what's something we can sell that people want? And they were good at optics. Nippon Kugaku was making the range finders and the binoculars and the scopes. And the American soldiers would find them on destroyed battleships and downed planes. And they'd be like, this is better than what the Germans are doing. So word got around and said, hey, these people are really good at this optical stuff. And that's why cameras became such a quick thing. Mamiya was was the first company to get back going. Uh, Fuji, Olympus, Nippon Kugaku, Seiki Kugaku, which was Canon, all those companies kind of just hit the ground running, pumping out cameras left and right. And that's ultimately why Japan was successful. I'm not going to jump to the conclusion of we owe Sony televisions and Nintendos and Segas and, and Honda Accords to Nikon, but all of Japanese industry after World War II kind of stemmed from their ability to make optical products. And you know, culturally, they, they just love taking those pictures. And I think that it was, you know, what you were saying, Richard, it, it was kind of in their culture. Mike, if I could add to your your history lesson there, uh, which was great. I think it's also helpful to point out the Korean War immediately following World War II had sort of a dual impact. One, it, it forced more investment in Japan as a place that was close, where it would be really handy to have manufacturing capability. 
And second, it gave the Japanese a huge market of a rich American people to sell cameras to. Uh, and, and that helped tremendously as well with their, their recovery. If you had to credit, it was multiple people, you can't credit one person. But if you had to pick one person that was the face of the Japanese camera industry in the United States at that time, it was David Douglas Duncan. He was one of the premier life photographers. And he had a story, again, Robert could explain it better than I could, but by chance encounter, a young Japanese photographer named Jun Mickey had a Leica camera with a Nikkor lens on it. And he shot a picture of Duncan at Life headquarters in Tokyo in the dark. And Duncan's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's just like, never mind. He took his picture, went home, developed it, printed an eight by 10, showed it to him the next day. He looked at it, goes, what, what did you shoot this with? Like he saw it was a Leica. He's like, no Leica lens can do that. He said, it's a Nikkor lens. He said, where is it made? It was made down the street in Tokyo. So Duncan and a couple other life photographers said, well, I want to see this. I want to see where these things are made. So they got a tour of the Nippon Kugaku factory. And they were so impressed with the quality of the lenses, the quality control the Japanese were doing was leaps and bounds beyond what the Germans were doing. Nippon Kugaku inspected 100% of every lens they ever made by hand. If there was even a slight bubble or any imperfection, it was scrapped and they'd start over. So that event that happened when Duncan was like, holy shit, this is really good lens was one week before the start of the Korean War. So he took home these lenses, they gave them to him and he mounted them to his Leicas. You know, this wasn't the Nikon rangefinders. These were Leica thread mount Nikkor lenses that he could put on a, a Leica. And the Korean War started. They all jumped on a plane and they flew to Korea and he shot the entire Korean War using Nikkor lenses. You could uh, you could still buy it on Amazon. Duncan's book, This Is War, which was literally the first widely published major publication of what war looked like. I mean, yeah, we've we've seen pictures of war as far back as the Civil War, but the Korean War was was heavily photo- photographed. And I'm not saying they were all Nikon lenses, but you know, Brian, you're, to your point that definitely helped jumpstart. You know, it took, it took them to the next level. You know, I don't know where would we be today if those two events had never occurred, June Mickey taking that picture and then also the Korean War. I mean, maybe it still would have been popular. It just probably would have taken longer. So that's way off topic. But it's relevant though, in the sense that, you know, the Japanese culture drove the half-frame cameras in the, in the, the 60s. Uh, we briefly mentioned the Rico, the Caddy, uh, Minolta had a camera called the Repo. Anybody have a Minolta Repo? There it is. He's got one in his hand. How quick is that? My favorite, I'm going to jump around here. One of my favorite half-frame cameras is the Ashika Samurai. Yep. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for somebody to come out with that. Samurai? Yep. So the Samurai is shaped like a camcorder. You actually can hold it one-handed. It's half-frame. It's an SLR. It's it's a fixed lens, though. You can't change it. But it shoots, the film transports vertically. So it transports up and down. So the, you know, most half-frame cameras, when you look through the viewfinder, it's naturally in portrait orientation. Well, the Samurai is naturally in landscape, which is, isn't, the Agate's the same way too, isn't it? Yeah. The Agate and the, uh, I don't want to like take the conversation away from the Samurai, but it's, it's interesting to contemplate the, the change in aspect ratio gave manufacturers a lot of freedom to work with in terms of rethinking the design. And the Canon dial looks like a prop from 2001, A Space Odyssey, with this like telephone dial-ish bubble ring around the lens. And uh, you kind of has a handle that sticks out the bottom that you 
can wind. It's actually an auto winder, but the orientation of it is very confusing. Like when you first pick it up, you're kind of not sure where to hold it. Like if you try to hold it in one place, the shutter button's in the wrong place or your fingers on the viewfinder. And eventually you realize that if you hold it vertically, it's actually very comfortable. And the uh, Agate actually has very uh, similar positioning of the shutter button and the controls uh, across them. Well, the, the Yashica Rapide also was. Yeah. The, that was a vertical, that was a landscape format. It's also a landscape. And it, it, the only way to use that, I actually have one of those as well. I left it at my house, but there's a hand grip that goes in the bottom of the camera. Without the hand grip, as the dial has the advance, the spring loading advance, that you'd hold on to. Uh, if you don't have the handle, it's nearly impossible to hold. Yeah, and the sequel too is like that, right? Also, and the Terran Chic. Yes, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Was the Terran Chic? There it is. You don't have the grip. So I have. I no, I don't. I have the Chic. I have the Sequel. I don't have the Rapid though, and I don't have the handles for either of them. The Terran works. The Yashica does not. This is a weird one. It looks like a motion picture camera, but it's just still picture. So anybody have a Ricoh Caddy? I don't know. Something I like about it is that it's it's a twenty five millimeter lens, which is the same as the Pen W, but it's uh, a a little bit a little bit less expensive. If you can find one on eBay, then a Pen W will be. I very nearly bought one last year, and it came down to that or a Pen F, and I went with the Pen F. But uh, I will say I was surprised by two things with the Caddy. One, how flat the front lens is and how nice that is. But two, how big the body is kind of compared to like a pen. So it's got a 25 millimeter lens, but is it a 2.8, F2.8, Sean? Yes, it's a it's, yeah, selenium meter, which is nice. It's a cold shoe, but you can see the... Uh, or, yeah, I've got my little level thing in there, but it looks kind of big for a half frame, though. Is it a little bit? How does that compare to a pen? Here's a a, a pen D three, so you can see it's it's got a, a little bit wider, a quarter inch, centimeter, something like that width. But it's actually less deep, at least than a pen D compared to a, you know a EE or something like that. Is uh, one of the things I like about these is that they're they're also they're very shallow. So I think for a 50s or 60s camera, I think it's pretty rare to be able to potentially carry them in in like a, a back pants pocket or something like that. But a lot of these, I think, really, really can work that way. So, Sean, you just joined us a few minutes ago. You missed the, the first half, but you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, uh, thanks. I'm, I'm Sean. I'm from uh, Pittsburgh. And I, uh, I don't know, I had a history with photography because I learned darkroom work in high school and I worked at a one-hour photo lab and then I set it aside and picked it up again during the pandemic and um, started buying broken cameras to tinker with and that kind of thing. Very cool. Good, good time to start as any. Yeah. I, I mean, it's great. I, I have uh, small kids and it was especially good during the pandemic to have a, a reason to just take walks and they can play playground and I can take pictures of things. And uh, that was a good way to, to occupy our time. I did want to, um, oh, sorry. Th this is, uh, I had to show off my uh, agate with an attached lens. This is a, uh, a Nikon conversion lens for the Nicorex 8F, which is a eight millimeter movie film camera, but it's got a 22 millimeter thread. And I wanted to try shooting eight millimeter film. And I found out that that one had the same thread size. So I got one that came with conversion lens and it is heavily vignette, but it does actually work in focus. So one of the things I, I, I love about the agate is that it's got a thread and I've shot black and white with it with, um, you know, red filters in it and that kind of thing. I think it's part of what makes that camera so so special is that it feels like a toy, but can work like a like a tool 
in a lot of cases. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more depth uh, what, what you did with that lens? And, and it, you literally just threaded it on. It's the same mount that you would use for like an eight millimeter Bolex lens? No. I, as, so I don't I don't know that much about movie film cameras. So I don't know the diameter of like a D mount or a C mount. But there's one there's one eight millimeter Nikon film camera, which is called the Nikorex Eight F. There was the Nikorex Eight, and there's the Nikorex Eight F. And the Eight F has a twenty two millimeter thread. And then they sold this attachment lens for it. Uh, zoom conversion lens, 0.8 to 2x. Yeah, I guess it is. It's a, that's, this is from eight millimeter to 20. But the lens, I, I don't know my optics, but the lens is, it's like looking through binoculars or something. It's, it's in focus as you slide it in and out, you know. And so I shot some test pictures with it. And like I said, especially if you have it, if you have it at the 20 millimeter end, then you're really getting like a circle in the middle of your already very small half frame frame. But it has a certain like ominous uh, surveillance kind of look to it that is fun. And I think it's really, it's just the novelty of uh, having a zoom lens on a camera that, you know, it, by all rights is a toy. You said you screwed it on, but I'm looking at my agate and it's not threaded. So are some of them threaded? Oh, really? Some of them are and some of them aren't. Okay. All right. See, see mine's not. Mine's not either. On the on the inside of the... You got to get the yellow one, guys. You got to get the yellow one. Mine, Yeah, mine's the yellow one. It's not threaded. Mine's yellow too. It doesn't have threading. Well, speaking of, of odd lenses for half frames, I, uh, I recently assembled a portrait lens for my Pen F out of a... Into Star 50 M42 to K mount, a K mount to EOS, and an EOS to Pen F set of adapters. And it uh, it looks a little strange. It's about twice as big as it needs to be. But how does that vignette? Uh, actually, not at all. Really cool. Not at all. Um, I mean, I'll tell you for sure when I get the film back, but just looking through the viewfinder, I couldn't see any. Uh, I mean, it's a full frame lens. So, you know, the Canon EOS adapter is pretty chunky. So, I don't think there's anything to kind of constrict it. How does it compare to the 100 millimeter that you get on the pen here? Because uh, I've got one of those. Also without the numbers at the bottom, by the way, going back to the previous <laughs> discussion. Well, I also would add that, that you know, when the pen F system came out, Olympus made a series of OEM lens adapters. So I've got the OEM uh, Exacta to pen F adapter. And it's really sweet because I can put the Biotar from my Exacta onto the the pin f and it is beautiful before anybody gets excited about those adapters though like they tend to go for about 300 at the lowest on ebay i found mine for like 15 bucks you you could be waiting for quite a while uh i've been waiting for quite a while but they work really well and it opens up a whole new universe of lenses because like there's so like i've even put put my topcon uh 50 millimeter one four on my pin f before and it is stunning of course but it's a lot of fun uh, to, to come back to something that brian had mentioned earlier uh, you mentioned that you thought that the canon dial looked like a prop from 2001 in fact it was a prop in the prisoner and there's an episode of the prisoner where he is running around the headquarters with his his canon dial it, it's a lot of fun to, to check out you can you just do a search for, for canon dial the prisoner and you'll see all the different uh images of it but it was definitely a science fiction prop it absolutely looks like it the dial is was designed to be used entirely one-handed so you, it's a clockwork you could wind it up you could hold it in auto exposure mode and just keep firing right with one it's it's a fun camera it's it's a lot of fun to use they made a dial rapid too which looks like a normal camera 
but it still uses that rotary phone style metering system. The uh, There's actually two versions of the dial. There's the 35 and the 35-2 in addition to that one. The 35-2 has a higher ISO. One of the things that's really nice about the uh, the dial is the, the viewfinder. Uh, you've got on the left side going down, it shows your focus distance. Uh, and that's not something that you often get. It has parallax lines. And then across the bottom, it shows you aperture for uh, uh, kind of if you're in auto settings. And it's full auto or manual, a little button on the front that pops out. Right. Now, those were, these were uh, the dials were initially brought in by Bell and Howell, or were they brought in by Keenan? Correct. No, Bell and Howell. Bell and Howell. Howell. Yeah, this is Bell and Howell. I have, I have a dial uh, two, and it's a Bell and Howell. The dial's a great camera. My The one flaw of the camera is that the battery, they took a cue from Raleigh, and they put the battery compartment inside the film compartment. So if the battery ever dies, you got to open up the camera to swap it out. But otherwise, it's a really neat camera. I wanted to say one last thing to Sean is, uh, if you if you could, why don't you share some of those pictures you took with that agate with the Nikkor eight millimeter lens in the Facebook group. So some of the people can see that. That was that, that's an eight millimeter movie camera lens. Yeah. Um, th that has uh, popped up at different camera shows on tables. Oh, look at this Nippon Kogaku special lens. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's that funny looking little uh, square, like transistor radio looking eight millimeter. Great. Did, did Mamiya make it for them? <laughs> uh, I can't talk about that. <laughs> Speaking of, of radios, uh, I nominate the Chica 3 as the camera that's oh. like a 1970s clock radio. I was, I was, I wanted to bring up the Chica 3. This, I like the Agate. I really do. It's a nice camera. But this is my favorite Soviet half-frame camera. Really? It's surprisingly solid. I mean, it's a heavy camera for being half-frame. I love the front, front shutter release. Uh, it's got this huge shutter speed dial on the top. Mine has a meter that actually works. You, you say all these things like they're good things. I love this camera. I really, really like the Chica 3. It's got a, a removable lens, but they never made another lens for it. So it was supposed to be for an enlarger, but I don't know if they ever made that. But it's, uh, it's M39, so you can use it on any enlarger you want. That's true, right. In fact, you're getting a free enlarger lens uh, with your camera. That's like the only good thing I could say about it. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like it. I do. I got great images from this one, and it's. A, I think it's fun to shoot. I have a version that doesn't have a viewfinder. It's original. Oh, really? Yeah. Chica? Yes. It's either a blind photographer uh, bought it, or uh, maybe some kind of... No, it reminds me of like the robot, you know, the original, the industrial robots that, you know, it's just a very well-made camera. Uh, we haven't heard much from, from Kier. Uh, do you have any favorite half frames you want to share with us? I actually uh, don't have any half frames. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've just kept quiet. Okay. <laughs> well, enjoy listening. <laughs> if if you had a wish list for camera that could be half frame, you have one that you wish would be half frame. Actually, probably what I want from hearing this discussion is a uh, is a pen because uh, I've been really enjoying playing with the Trip Thirty Five, and if the pens are anything like this, they're very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So. That, that would definitely be on my wish list because this is my go-to just point yeah. and shoot, you know, snap, 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 and burn through film like it doesn't cost what it actually costs nowadays. So half frame of that would be great. In my opinion, the Trip 35 is like a double frame, half frame pen. <laughs> so there's there there's a lot of similarities between them too. So yeah, I would, the D3, I it's probably the one that I'm lusting after, uh, a Pen S is nice because they're not that expensive and they're fully mechanical. I would stay away from the EEs unless you absolutely are sure the seller guarantees that the meter works, but um, there's enough to, to try out.
And if you're going back and forth between the trip and the pen, just be careful to remember which one's which so you don't double stroke it and break it. I, I have a 35 RC and I can't tell you how many times I've picked it up and tried to, like, it takes me a second to wonder where the second stroke is and why it won't work. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's different, wrong camera. But the feel is so similar. We mentioned the Soviet cameras before. One that I've been shooting for quite a while and quite enjoyed a lot is the, the Micron. I think it's Fed. Yeah, Fed Micron. These are great little cameras. Did you know that that's a copy of the Konica Eye? Yes, and the Konica Eye, I was getting to that. The Konica Eye is a famous <laughs> symbol. And, and Mike, what does that symbol look like? Knockers. <laughs> <laughs> Two episodes in a row. <laughs> hey, sexy, come on, come on. I don't want to be canceled. Apart from Ray, who cannot answer this, did Mamiya make ever a half frame camera? The sketch count? I mean, it's a uh, square frame, but you know, it's less than standard frame. No, not the, not the sketch. He made a police, a police half frame that was pistol shooter. No, and not the pistol shooter, sorry. That, that, that's quite unique. It's the mirror pit and it's the only half frame camera apart from that pistol one, which is something totally different that Mamiya ever made. Uh, so how about this trivia question? Two half frame, two different half frame cameras, each of which has two separate taking lenses. The Fuji uh, TW3. Yep, that's one of them. And the Konica recorder. Recorder, yes. Oh, the recorder is one. I thought that was one taking lens. This other one is a real sleeper half frame. I don't have it. Oh. Didn't didn't Canon? Can, yes. We talked about it. On a, it's a, yeah, it's a Canon point and shoot. Canon Auto Boy Tele. Yeah. It's a it's an auto it's an autofocus point and shoot camera only auto boy means it would be only in Japan. Somebody brought that up on a pre maybe it was you, Brian. We've talked about this before, but I've they're really uncommon. Selectable half frame or full frame. And uh it's uh it's called the multi-tele here. Uh it went by three or four different names, yeah. But it, I believe it had a 35 and a 70 taking lens. I'm starting to see a lot more auto boys populate in the U United States right now. A lot more in the market. Do you think it's just because point and shoots are hot or do you think there's people know what they're getting? I, I think it's because point and shoots are hot again. I'm looking up the multi-tele. Yeah, they're with one exception, they're all $100 and up. I'm just not willing to spend that on a 80s electronic point and shoot. No, I think the, uh, the the TWIMG or TWIMG, however you wish to call it, I think it has a fatal flaw because the battery is like soldered in it or not easily changeable. You, you can you can you can resolder a battery in it. That's how the Fuji TW3 is. You can it's really easy. Another camera, it's not half frame, but so uh, Canon made the solar powered Sure Shot Soul, yeah. which has a rechargeable battery, and that's replaceable too. With you have to desolder it though. Uh, and then I, I think Konica Recorder is the last of the ones of that kind of '80s generation before we get to and the modern Kodak. No, I have I have I have four or five recorders and nothing works. Every I've picked one up that worked. It's horrible. It's kind of a really cool camera. Has anybody used one that does work? I've never seen one. They they look absolutely beautiful. It's very cool. It's very deceiving. Prices are out of control on those recorders. Yes, they are. Yeah. Yeah. They've been like that for a long time and they don't work, which is weird. They I I've, I've never seen one work. Sean, what were you say? Oh, I I've uh, I've got a multi-tele and I I've used this a fair amount actually. It's a 35 and a 60 uh, lens and it's it's been reliable. I think it's a little bit newer than uh, the TW3 and the Konica recorder. Oh, it's big, yeah. It's a huge camera. It's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it, it it takes full frame photos too and you have to just decide when you when you put the film in which what you're going to do. So you can't switch mid-roll? No. 
Yeah, the switch is, is inside the film compartment. Unlike that classified X-Pan. Is the auto reflex Kanaka the only camera that could do mid-roll switches between full and half frame? Are there any others? I can't think of one. I think it's the only one. Yeah. Well, getting back to what Theo said, the Hasselblad X-Pan, you can go back and forth. That's true. Right. I think the LCA wide might count too, uh, if that's... Uh... Oh, yes, it does. It does. That's a very really good point. The LCAY does uh, switch halfway through, but it does require a frame. Yeah, it doesn't have like built-in baffles or something. So, yeah. No, but you get a really interesting effect because when you switch to half frame and then you take a whole series of small shots to make a big panoramic, it actually makes a really interesting effect, especially if you're hand-holding it. I sent Mike after the Konica episode, I found an FT1 motor professional half frame on eBay that I never heard of before. An FT1 Konica motor, he for professional, it's coming out of Japan, half frame camera. I think it's down to $1,300 brand new. Wow. Yeah, that's not cool. But, and, and I believe that camera can also be switched back and forth between full frame and single shot. So now we can talk about the Kodak H35 or whatever the thing's called. Does anybody, does anybody here have one? I, I think I have its uh, Chinese knockoff. This is something I found on uh, Pinkoy, which is like an AliExpress kind of website at some point. Was it half, was it half price? <laughs> Why did they do that? It's not a very good camera. I, I would definitely recommend anyone go out and spend their $50 on an agate instead. But it's cool that uh, it's new. That camera's got a plastic lens, right? Mm -hmm. So I would imagine it's got probably severe softening on the edges at full frame. So honestly, half frame probably makes sense. Like you're cropping it down to just the part of the lens that can produce okay image quality. Maybe that's the thought behind it. So that's, I mean, but here's the problem is, is that if those cameras are being catered to a Gen Z younger market who's trying to get back into film, the reason they're going back into film is to make prints. And you're back to the same problem we had in the 60s and 70s, where it's really difficult to make prints from half frame cameras. So I, I, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've never had one, but I don't know who the target market is for that camera. I think it is that younger audience. Uh, I don't know it's prints. I think it's scans. I think it's people. It's all scans. Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. I'll, I'll make a statement. I was in, in one of my dealers in Philadelphia a few months ago, and I saw the, the Gen Z customers walk in with a roll of 120. So you have a little bit more respect. And they're dropping the roll of film off for processing and scans and buying a secondary roll. $45 later, the, the clerk is, do you want do you want to pick your negatives up? I'm like, no, that's okay. Just throw them away. So they're spending $10 a roll for the $10 to buy the roll of film. They're spending, you know, $25 a role to have it developed in medium resolution scan. And they're like, just throw the eggs away. So, and that's the person who, uh, you know, who's driving the market right now. We, we bought one of those Kodaks for, for our, for my niece and she'd be, I think about 18. And it's exactly that, the, it's whatever is appealing to that, that younger audience now with film, whatever aesthetic that they're, they're liking out of it, but it is, it, it scans. And they're not worrying about prints so much. It's scans and online. But with film prices, that 72 shots, you know, is is what's appealing to the younger person who wants to shoot the film. I think that I think that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of the reason it's appealing to those photographers is that it, the same reasons it's not appealing to me and, and to others, maybe in my group. Uh, it's designed to give a look that is different and looks kind of lo-fi and, and film-y like a disposable, basically, which is what I think many in 
age group kind of identify as film. Not about like the permanence of the image or anything like that, or the permanence of having a negative. It's too good to be a shitty camera, like the Rito ultra wide and slim. And it's too shitty to be a good camera, like the agate. It kind of falls in this middle space of neither bad enough to be bad good, but not good enough to be good good. And I think that's the exact reason that they, they like it, is it's, you know, it doesn't look like crap, but it's definitively. Or it's half good. How about that? <laughs> I'll, I'll get behind that because that makes the agate just good then. Yeah, it's regular good and then half good. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a discussion that's come up over and over again. I don't even want to get into it about the need for new cameras, right? I We probably all saw the Pentax release in Japanese. That guy's talking about the new Pentax camera that they want to have manual wind. I mean, the guy is like, you can hear his enthusiasm through the Japanese. You know, I don't speak Japanese, you read the subtitles, but they're making a manual advance. They spent so much time on the film advanced wind. They're trying to appeal to that tactile, the new quality. And I'm all for it. I'm all excited. But I just, if, if the, if the Gen Z people who are spending the money on these Kodak, you know, the H cameras, if they could just know, you know, how much better it could be with some of these other ones, you know, if they're willing to give it a shot. Uh, we need to have a Gen Z episode. If if any of you guys know anybody that's Gen Z, I want to talk to them. I want to I want to have a Gen Z up, ep- you know, a Gen Z episode. I'd like to say actually, I'm probably the closest to Gen Z in this uh, in this call right now. I'm 19, so I know a lot of people of that age group, and a lot of what people my age are trying to do with film is sort of upgrade from disposable cameras, whereas I've been collecting for uh, years and years now. I I see with friends of mine have gotten into film, they're just upgrading from the lowest quality plastic lens disposable cameras. So it hasn't necessarily crossed their minds that uh, there are all these fantastic from Kodak. This is a new camera. I think that it appeals more. Sorry, that sort of uh, fell apart at the end there, but hopefully you get what I mean. No, I, I think I understand. You you did cut out there a little bit, but you know, it, it's new, but it's old, you know, and, and maybe the old, but old, it doesn't have that same, you know, shiny new object, but it's still old, you know, is that kind of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I would say so. And uh, a lot of people aren't willing to trust uh, camera that they're buying off of eBay necessarily. They should buy from Paul. Paul's stuff is good. Oh yeah, I agree. <laughs> I have a lot of broken cameras. <laughs> No, this is a topic I've actually wanted to have a discussion like this before. And it's not that I I'm so out of touch. I don't I don't get it. But like, I want to learn what what people are shooting and, you know, what questions do they have? Like, how can we help? You know, a lot of people are surprised to know that I never shot film that much prior to collecting cameras. Like what I literally started this hobby one day bored on eBay. I found an old Kodak folder and said, hey, that's kind of neat. I'm going to buy it. And now I'm I'm here, right? So I know what it's like to get started and be completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what a Leica was. I didn't know. I never heard of half of the camera companies. King Regula, Miranda, you know, all these companies. I didn't know any of it. And I asked questions and people helped me, you know, guys like Paul and, you know, Anthony and Theo, I, I met, you know, Anthony, I met through the classic lenses podcast. Theo has got a blog too. And this community I found to be so incredibly helpful 
you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's your first roll of film or your millionth, you know, people are always learning. And, and, and I, I want to help, you know, I want to learn myself and I want to see like, is there something I'm missing, you know, cause I'm intrigued by the Kodak camera. I kind of want to buy one. I don't have a Rito. I want, I want to check one of those out too. So Maxwell, bring your friends on the next show. <laughs> <laughs> sure, if they'll uh, if they'll join me. <laughs> sure, maybe someone knows uh, some someone else doing a a a, pod, a a Gen Z photo podcast that you could uh, join forces with for one episode, like have a a meetup, not a meetup. Yeah, I don't think there is. I really don't. Yeah, just bring them on, bring them on board, and let's let's see what's what the you know what they have to say and what listen to what we have to say. Kind of what we really want to do on this show is. I, I, I want someone to come in that maybe likes a little bit of the history. Maybe some people like a specific brand. Maybe some people like to learn about half frame. Maybe some people want to learn about home developing. You know, there's, I feel like there's a whole untapped market of people. I just don't know. I'm 45 years old. I don't know how to reach that market though. That's it's, I'm too, I'm, I'm younger than some of you guys, but I'm too old to reach out to other 19 year olds that are interested in this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I feel like that that's an, unexplored area because correct me if i'm wrong i don't there are no gen z photography podcasts if you know if there are tell me but that i know of and i don't necessarily want to do that but i want to at least have that discussion and learn more so something i think would be cool for a future episode i think some of it has to do with collector mentality too i mean collectors tend to be it seems like cranky i don't want to say older necessarily but uh, you know you don't see a lot of people cranky too you know some some of the like of people i've met are a little cranky there are whole subjects of cameras i don't even like to talk about because i don't want to have to deal with the the nuances and the meticulousness <laughs> of them so you're not wrong mike where are you banned from is probably a good example i am banned i got kicked out of the zeiss historica uh facebook group and they banned me so bad i can't even search for it anymore and i don't even know why like i tried to ask like what did i do wrong and i think they didn't like it because one of the members came to my site and because i have ads on it that are targeted to browsing history they were seeing ads for like depends or something, I think they got offended because I got an email saying, why am I seeing so many adult diaper ads on your website? And I'm like, that's not, that's, I'm not doing that. So yeah, size people don't like. One last question I wanted to, to just ask, which is on the topic of modifying cameras into half frames. This question uh, on Reddit, I feel like it's asked maybe about once a month, somebody will say, hey, can I modify this thing? And usually the explanation for that goes, well, it's not so simple. You have the viewfinder, you have the, the you need, you know, some sort of mask or framing. But the real killer is the wind and cocking of the shutter. How would you sort of deal with that? So I wanted to just ask if anybody was foolish enough to try that, have any stories on that, uh, or any other interesting tidbits relating to kind of making half frames out of full frame. Prop it. <laughs> just waste the edges. No, I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't, masking would be the easy part. I mean, you, anybody could 3D print, or you could even just get some rigid cardboard and shove it in there. And I mean, yeah, that would technically move the film plane out a little I don't think it would make a huge difference, but how do you overcome the winding though? Because most, I mean, unless you're going back to like a 30s or 40s camera that doesn't have double image prevention, how would you modify the camera to only advance four sprockets instead of eight? I don't think there's an easy solution to that. You know, the, the Konica 3M we mentioned earlier, when you insert the mask, there's a, like a pin that when it detects the presence of the mask, it automatically switches from double advance to single advance. Uh, the Konica Auto Reflex has a lever. It's purpose designed to work that way. But to just do that to a camera that's not intended to work that way, I don't know how you do that. 
I mean, you'd almost have to start with like something really simple, like an Argus C3 or something. And even that has double image prevention. So maybe that wouldn't work. I don't know. That's a good question. What if you were to modify the uh, transport gears? Take half of the one? And that's what you'd have to do. You'd have to literally redesign it because that's... You'd have to be a major camera repairman to be able to do that. Right. Radar can do right? Our buddy in Florida. Radu. Oh, God, Radu. Yeah. It would cost you $9,000. The, the Veras are interesting. They have a ring around the lens that you rotate to cock it. And on the bottom, there's just a simple rack that that uses to uh, advance the film. Or sorry, I think the rack is for cocking the shutter. Yeah, but that's what it is. I've toyed with the idea of maybe trying to do some modifications on that at some time. Uh, but it does not seem like an easy enterprise. I really don't think it is. I don't know how you would do it. Be again, it's the film advance that's the problem. You could you could find a camera without double image prevention and feasibly just wind it halfway and just fire it. But you'd have to defeat basically what the camera's like designed not to allow you to do. So go get a Konica Auto Reflex. Uh, the prices are already escalating on those, so I don't feel bad proposing those. Or just get a get a Hasselblad X Pen. There you go. So with the Olympus Pen, I know my understanding is the very first ones were not actually made by Olympus. That's true. Um, and they were made by someone else is how do you tell those apart from the is there a way to tell those apart from the olympus pins there is and i don't remember what it is okay so there are the original olympus pens some have a single lug and some have a dual lug mm -hmm. i can tell you that the dual lugs are all olympus for sure okay the single lugs the presence of a single lug does not mean it's made by the original company because that th that only happened for like nine months so it's very, very rare for you to find one that was made. So the when when Maitani uh, created the original pen and released it, they were amazed he was able to accomplish it. But the the bean counters didn't understand why anybody would want to buy such a cheap small camera, and they didn't want to risk slowing down their production line of other cameras they're making at the time so they outsourced the production of the original pens to somebody else but the second it hit the market it outsold everywhere it was just the demand was through the roof immediately and then they had to take back the production in like i want to say march of 60 or something there is a way to tell i think it might have to do with the flash there's like flash distance markings on the front of the lens I, I but don't hold me to that but there is a way to tell yeah because i have a, a one that's a single lug with like a greenish leather but i, I couldn't remember like if it's the olympus or a... yeah i'm really sorry i can't i don't know off the top of my head but there, there is a way to tell but i, I wouldn't hold my breath because they're super rare yeah and it's only the pen and the pen s that were manufactured but looks by the i don't think the s was i mean unless i'm wrong i think it was just the only the original model. You're absolutely right. Yes, by San Sanko Soji. Yeah. Real quick lightning round. Everybody will do one at a time. Blurt out what the next half frame camera you're going to load up and shoot is going to be. Ready? Theo. Uh, Ensco Memo. Ensco Memo. Here we go. Ensco Memo. Pen D3. Anthony. Konica Auto Reflex. Paul. Mercury. Ray. Mamiya Sketch. Richard. Demi, when I get it fixed. Uh, Robert. Pen F. Sean. Agate 18K. Brian. Agate 18K or Pen F. Maxwell. I don't know if it counts as half frame, but it's not standard 35 millimeter. It's just what's close. I've got a Stereo Realist 45. There you go. Hey. All right. Stereo camera. And we already know Kara doesn't have one, so we won't ask him. And Phil walked away. So uh, 
mean, we didn't even get into whether double half frame is full frame. Well, we did. We kind of covered that at the beginning. Well, yeah, yeah. It's double frame, remember? It's double frame, yeah. Yeah, but if it's double of the same frame. Is it quad frame? Oh. Quad frame. The stereo. Stereo half frame. Is that full frame? Well, but, but, but they're not the same frame. Yeah. There's a difference. It's similar frames. That's true. If you want to get into a really bizarre stereo camera with tiny images, try one of those Viewmaster stereo cameras. You get the little pinky nail size exposures that they make. This was a really fun episode. It's always interesting to see the kind of turnout we get. Uh, really glad to see some new faces on this episode. Maxwell, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Sean, great to see you. Kier, awesome to meet you. Uh, a couple other people came back from previous episodes. Richard, always glad to have you on. This is our 49th episode. So that means the very next episode is going to be our 50th. I, I cannot believe that this show has existed for 50 episodes. That's halfway to 100. Halfway, we're halfway to 100, right. I think we decided we're going to do three weeks out because two weeks from today is the Memorial Day holiday in the United States and it's just causing too much of a scheduling conflict for us. So the next time we record will be three weeks from today, but will be our 50th episode. I'm trying to get a couple special guests to join us on that episode. I haven't had luck so far. Maybe at the very minimum, we're just going to sit here and eat like stale birthday cake or something and, uh, and sing happy birthday to ourselves for our our 50th show but as always the topics and discussions on the camera rusty podcast are decided entirely by you we could talk about robot cameras on an episode of half frame cameras or mike could go into a diatribe about david douglas duncan and the japanese photo industry you just never know so thank you guys for coming you guys have a good night bye bye good night good night everyone thank you I was just watching a rebroadcast of Midnight Special Number Three, uh-huh. and they played the clip from Deliverance of Dueling Banjos. That song, right? How many banjos? Three, I think. One. Really? Yep. It's a, it's banjo and guitar. But it wasn't, so it wasn't dubbed. Well, it could have been dubbed, but it, it's, it's, I mean, they play it as if it's just one guitar, or one banjo.